through the book of Exodus together. Uh, we've seen how God has rescued his people, uh, how he has taken them through the Red Sea, through the waters, how he has given him them his law. And now we've seen recently in Exodus how the Lord has given Moses instruction. He's invited Moses to come up the mountain into that holy place. He's given him instruction now on how the people are to rightly worship God. And so hopefully you've seen how God spends a lot more time in Exodus teaching his people about worship than even teaching them on how they're to live. And so he gives the Ten Commandments. He gives them uh, his, uh, his law. But then he spends a great deal of time teaching them about uh, details concerning the Lord's sanctuary, that the, the tabernacle, that tent of meeting, all that would go in it, instructions about the priest, specifically the high priest, and what his functions would be. And then we'll see in these chapters today, Exodus 30 and 31, how God will conclude this teaching with Moses by giving him more details about the tabernacle. Uh, but then specifically, God's going to call uh, a couple of individuals to serve in building the tabernacle. And specifically, he's going to tell Moses how he's going to empower them to do this. And so prayerfully, as we look to this text today, uh, we'll continue to learn more about the gospel, more about God's word and God's will. And so uh, I'm going to speak briefly to Exodus 30. So for the majority of our time today, we'll be in 31. So I'm just going to read Exodus 31 for us today, verses 1 through 18. So out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand. As I read this text for us, again, remembering that, that God has invited Moses now into his holiness. He's speaking his word to him. And this is what God's word tells us, beginning in Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to advise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him a holy lab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense." and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. 
Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would teach us through it, that we might see more clearly the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that gospel which we just sang of, that Christ who holds us fast. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps some of you this week saw that there was a record-breaking auction that took place last week. It was an art auction, and being the husband of an art teacher, these things tend to catch my attention at times. Uh, This one certainly did because it was of a painting entitled Savior of the World. It was a 500-year-old depiction of Christ painted, uh, attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. That painting sold at auction for $450 million. It broke all records. It was an astonishing amount to be paid for a painting. But what was even more remarkable to me when I did a little research on it was to find that this same painting that sold for almost half a billion dollars had been purchased just 12 years before. It was sold at an estate auction in 2005. And then it was thought to be a copy of the original work. And so it sold for a mere $10,000. Now you just think about that for a second. I'm no math whiz, so I had to get out my calculator here. In 12 years, that's a 45,000% increase. Now, imagine for a second that you could go back in time. Imagine for a second that you had the opportunity to go back 12 years. Imagine you were at that estate auction. Imagine you had with you the resources, 10,000, 12,000, whatever it would take to buy that painting. And you knew looking ahead from where you come that 12 years later that painting would sell for $450 million. Would you make that investment? In the Gospels, Jesus tells us that we have something more valuable than a half a billion dollar painting. And the Gospels, Jesus tells us that we have something worth so much more. In fact, he describes it this way. He he talks about the kingdom of heaven. He, He talks about the gospel. He talks about the eternal life that comes through knowing Christ as king. And he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Jesus is speaking in a context in a day when they don't have credit unions, they don't have banks, but people would bury their treasure. And he says, imagine you were to come across a field and it was priced for a certain amount, but there hidden in the field was this enormous treasure. Who who wouldn't go buy that thing? And then as he continues to teach about these things, he says this in Matthew 16. He says, it's not about the earthly treasure. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus essentially says to the people of his day, what is the price that you would put on a soul? 
And we live in a culture where people might put a price on a famous painting. Jesus lived in a day when people might put a price on a field with a treasure buried in it. But the more important question in his day and in our day is this. Friend, what is your soul worth? And are you willing to make an investment? Not in those things which are temporal, not in with those things that will not last. Are you willing to make an investment in the eternal care of your soul? That's the question we have every Lord's Day when we come to the Word. When we open it up and we have this opportunity to invest in the Word. And here's the great thing. You don't need to put in a bid. You don't need to have a checkbook. This is the free gospel given to us. But the investment on our part takes some effort. It takes effort to look at the Word, to seek to understand the Word, and seek to apply the Word. And so that's what we're going to do today. Well, we're going to make a soul care investment. And we're going to do it from a passage that perhaps for many of us, we've just kind of glazed over in the past. As we've talked about before, we're now in this section of Exodus where if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, read through Exodus. Once you get past the Ten Commandments, people just kind of tend to skip over these chapters. I mean, most of us, we're looking for baby names. We're probably not looking at Bezalel and Aholiab and and a Hishamak. And so we just kind of move past these things, but yet what we have in here is a great reminder for us of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And specifically what we have in here is a great reminder for us of the importance of the Spirit of God and what it means to be a Spirit-filled believer. And so we're going to look at those things as we seek to make this soul care investment today, beginning with the first point there in your outline. Now we learn here in these chapters that we need the Spirit of God in order to do the work of the God. We need the Spirit of God to do the work of God. And so just by way of summary, we won't spend a lot of time in Exodus 30, but essentially here, God is giving further instruction uh, to Moses about the tabernacle. And so he tells him uh, there in the beginning, there's to be an altar of incense. This would be there right before they went into the most holy place. Uh, there was supposed to be incense burning there continually. And so the high priest's job was to go in and to make sure that was lit every morning and every night. Uh, then he talks about the census tax. Essentially, this is the way that all of the Israelites would be a part of the expenses that came with the tabernacle. And then he talks about the bronze basin. This is where the priests would wash their hands and their feet as they prepared to make offerings. And then he talks about the anointing oil and the incense. These were things that, that were set apart for a sanctified holy use there in the temple. And so God continues to tell his people, I, I am telling you how to worship me. Remember, we've looked at this already. Well, we live in a day and a culture when people like to determine on their own how they're going to worship God. We talk about worship like it's about us. Well, I got something out of that, or I didn't get much out of that, or I really like it when we do this. And yet we note here in Exodus that God is the one who determines how he will rightly be worshipped. God doesn't leave any detail up to Moses and the people. He tells them exactly how he desires to be worshipped. He tells them what to build. He tells them every detail. And then notice what he does here. He tells them in Exodus 31 who's going to do it and how they're going to do it as he tells him, Bezalel and Aholiab, these are men that had been prepared and set aside to do the work of the tabernacle. Now they were gifted men. 
He says they have gifts and abilities, they have intelligence, they have knowledge and craftsmanship. But notice what he says there in Exodus 31, verse 3. God says, I have filled him, speaking of Bezalel, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. This is the first time we see this phrase, this mention in Exodus, the Spirit of God. But it's not the first time we've seen it in the Scripture. In fact, in the very opening chapter, in the very opening verses of Genesis, where God speaks of the creative work, He mentions the Spirit of God. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see Moses recording there in Genesis 1 that the creative work of our triune God, God the Father, speaks all things into existence. We see God, the Holy Spirit, hovering over the waters, active in the creation of all things. And then we learn as we continue in the Scripture the role that Christ plays in all of that. In John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. In fact, John goes on to say, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we have this picture in creation of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at work. We have that same picture in the tabernacle. God speaks to Moses and says, this is how you shall make it. God uses his Holy Spirit to fill the men who would be active in making these things. And as we've already looked at, all of these things in the tabernacle point directly at Jesus. And we see in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, that, that, that altar where sacrifice would be made one after another after another until our great high priest, the one who both offers up the sacrifice, the one who is the sacrifice, he makes that final and perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, our, our sacrificial lamb, that lamb without blemish as he goes to the cross. We see there in the tent of meeting, they had that golden lamp stand. It was to light the, the inside of the tent there for the high priest as they would go in. It was to burn continually, to light be lit day and night. And it points directly towards who? Towards Christ. Towards the light of the world. <laughs> towards the one who, in him there is no darkness at all. And so we see in the tabernacle the work of God the Father, God the Son, and now God the Spirit. That work doesn't end there. Because we see the triune God at work in the life of his people today. Because just as he created that, that original sanctuary for Adam and Eve, the garden, and as he creates the, the, the tabernacle here, that temporary place, we see that in the scripture he, he will now create and has created his church, the church of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, For through Him we have access in one Spirit to the Father. It is the same Spirit at work in the church today that was at work here in the building of the tabernacle and it was at work in the creation of all things. He describes the church today in this way. He says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He goes on in Ephesians 5 to say, Therefore... Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And you think about that phrase for a second, being filled with the Spirit, being Spirit-filled. Well, we live in a culture where we, we tend to look at, at being filled with the Spirit kind of on, on two different extremes. And so on one extreme, we've got what we might view as kind of a, a hyper-charismatic, hyper-Pentecostal idea of being filled with the Spirit, that, that if we're filled with the Spirit, that means there's going to be all these manifestations that come with that. And so I've talked to some who've said, well, no, you know, if you're truly filled with the Spirit, then you speak in tongues. And then even beyond that, if you're, if you're truly filled with the Spirit, that means you have the gift of healing. If you're truly filled with the Spirit, that, that means, you know, for some, you've seen stories, you can be bit by snakes and not die. It's kind of all the way on this one end extreme. And, and, and I think for many of us, we're, we're not real comfortable there. Hopefully we see some, some biblical issues wrong there. But, but what we tend to do with this and so many other things is in an effort to stay away from one extreme, we go all the way over to the other side. And so then we're on this kind of almost anti-Holy Spirit side of things. I mean, come on, we're, we're Baptist. I mean, imagine if you drove up this morning and we put signs up outside, we're a Spirit-filled Baptist church. You'd be like, whoa, what's going on here? You know what? Brother Richard's been drinking. We... we, we get nervous when we hear those terms because we've come so far over here and yet these are biblical terms that this is the word of god and god says in creation at the tabernacle and in his church today his spirit as at work but to understand that spirit's work and what it means to be filled with the spirit well we need to look at what the scripture says and notice again in ephesians 5 what did paul say therefore don't be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit and so paul here gives this illustration to help us especially us on the other end of things a bit to understand what it means to be spirit filled and he does it by using something that most of us probably have some understanding of, drunkenness. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or an altar call this morning, but maybe you've uh, read of such things. You know, when someone is drunk, what's taking place there? Well, they've, taught, they've brought this substance into their body. They, they, they've drank alcohol. And they've drank enough of it to where it starts to alter things about them. And so it may alter their speech. It probably alters their actions. Perhaps for some even, it, it alters their personality. And so you hear people saying things like, well, well, that's not them, that's the alcohol. Or, or they're just like that when they're drinking because we're acknowledging that alcohol does something to them and the fruit of it plays itself out in their life in such a way that you can recognize they are filled with it. And Paul here is saying, rather than being filled with this substance that for the most part has a negative fruit, instead be filled with the Spirit. But notice here, he doesn't say that that filling then results in tongues and snakes and all these other things. What does he say? Well, what does it look like biblically to be filled with the Spirit? Well, notice Ephesians 5. Filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. The, the first fruit that Paul mentions here of the Spirit-filled life is you sing. Now, let's, let's be real for a second. I pulled up beside the stop sign, stoplights beside some of you before. Y'all some singing people. 
you know, certain things come on the radio and you're just, oh, what you're singing it. I imagine if I went with some of you to a concert or two, you'd be out there just singing loud as you could. And maybe even it's not a concert, maybe, maybe it's a football game and it's a fight song. And you're just belting it out with a bunch of people you've never seen before, you're never going to see again. And then we come to church on Sunday morning, and we start to sing. Pour from seems what time this is. And I've let y'all in a little secret before we don't know the words, you know. Watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Just keep moving your mouth saying Watermelon. I mean, again, I, I don't want you to suddenly think, oh, I've got to make sure I look like I'm singing because I'm being watched. You are being watched. But, <laughs> but, but why, why is that? Why is it that we can sing so enthusiastically about a fountain filled with champagne, <laughs> but when we start singing about a fountain filled with the blood of Christ, we struggle? Well, I think there's two reasons. I think one of it is, Honestly, a lot of us aren't spirit-filled because we haven't actually responded to the gospel. So we're just kind of going through the motions. And so the reason that you might not have a desire to sing about the things of God is because maybe you haven't experienced the things of God. That's the reality of it. Because, friend, if, if you know what it means to, to, to have every sin you've ever committed and every sin you ever will commit brought beneath the blood of Jesus Christ and to be truly and fully forgiven and not carry around that the burden of sin, not fear that one day you will experience the wrath of God because Christ Himself has experienced that wrath on the cross. If you know what it means to experience the, the freedom of the Gospel of Jesus. I don't care how bad your voice is, you're going to sing something because you're going to have a song to sing. And I think that's part of it. I think the other reason is is because we've, we've kind of fallen into this mentality, and I, I confess I fall there too, where we think we've got to be just this, this great singer to sing, you know. We've got a newsflash for you. This is not an audition for American Idol on Sunday morning, okay? It's not about you. It's not about your voice or your pitch. It's about what the Scripture says here, that we are to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is an act of thanksgiving that we lift our voices. And notice what Paul says there, when we're Spirit-filled, we will lift our voices and we'll give thanks. It is no great spiritual feat to give thanks in the end zone for a touchdown. Now, if you're a football player, I apologize, but for the rest of us. It's no great feat to get up to a podium and receive an award and to start out by thanking God. You know, that's just kind of our, our culture. It's called just added on there. It's not a big deal that in the midst of celebration, oh yeah, I just want to thank God. But I'll tell you what is a big deal. When we thank God in the midst of suffering, 
when we thank God in the midst of trial, when we thank God in the midst of loss, that, that's when the world is confounded. That, that's when the world doesn't understand. That's when it doesn't make sense to the world around us. But for those in Christ, it makes perfect sense. But because we trust in the One who holds all things in His hands, He will indeed hold us fast. And we look towards a day when there is no more tears, and there is no more death, and there is no more any of this. He will hold us fast. When we look to the day when there's no need for a sun because the light of the glory of God shines on us, He will hold us fast. And when we look towards that day, it doesn't mean we don't grieve, friends. But it means, as the Scripture tells us, we grieve as those who have hope. And in that hope, we can give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. And then one other thing Paul mentions here is when we're Spirit-filled, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. You know what that means? It means that what the church of Jesus Christ when it's filled with the Spirit should look like is that my, my interests are secondary to your interests. And your interests are secondary to my interests. It means, as the Scripture says, we are looking to meet one another's needs before we're looking to get our own needs met. You imagine today if you took a poll in our nation, is that how people would describe the church? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I've never met a more group of selfless people. They never argue about anything. You know, the world grumbles and complains, but not the church, man. They're just, they're a group of people who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. No, we, we struggle in this area so often. So many of our churches are known more for their division than their unity. And again, why is that? Well, it's because, honestly, a lot of us might be part of a local church, but we're not necessarily part of the church of Jesus Christ. And then for those who are, we're, we're not obeying what he says here and understanding that being filled with the Spirit, it, it's not all these sensational things. Being filled with the Spirit means we, we worship and we sing and we thank God in all things and we submit to one another. That, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And so Paul says, listen, just like that alcohol affects your speech and your attitude and your actions, the Holy Spirit should. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Friends, imagine what it would look like if everyone who professed to be a Christian today was truly a Spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ. That that's what we're being called to as we look to this passage because Paul, or excuse me, God's reminding us here as He speaks to Moses about these men that He set apart and He's filled them with His Spirit for, for the work that's to take place. And so He gives them not only His will and His Word and His plan, He gives them the Holy Spirit to be the power for that plan. They certainly had abilities, but those abilities were given by God. And so notice what we see here twice in this passage. Verse 6, I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. In verse 11, according to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. 
And so what we see here is it's not just that the Spirit of God is needed for the work of God, point two there in your outline, that the Spirit of God enables us to obey the Word. The Spirit of God enables us to obey the Word. So here, God gives His Word to His people, and He calls them to obey it, but then He says, I'm going to empower you so that you can obey it. Now this is what we miss so often when we go all the way to this edge where we're so uncomfortable with even talking about the Spirit-filled life because what the Spirit-filled life means is that we understand that God's enabled us to obey Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so many of us are seeking to obey God in our own power and that doesn't work out very well. In fact, it frustrates us. So you come to church on Sunday... You hear a message, you walk up, man, I really need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, and then a few days later, you're just back doing what you were doing before, and you're frustrated. And you'll say, well, I really want to do that. Well, I really need to try to do this. Friends, you need to understand, what, what have we learned in the study of Exodus? The, the, the Israelites are there in slavery in Egypt. Why didn't they just march themselves out? Because they couldn't. They needed God to send them a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior, Moses, who then leads them through the waters towards the promised land. And on the way, God gives them instructions to obey, but they can do that because now they're a saved people. And it's the same thing with us in the gospel. We are born, the scripture says, slaves to sin. Why can't we just stop sinning? Because <laughs> we can't. I mean, try it. Doesn't work. Well, I'll never sin again. Yes, you will. You sin when you say you won't sin because you just sin because you just lied. We, we can't do that in the flesh and we can't do that once we're a Christian because we need the Spirit of the living God at work within us to enable us to obey. I mean, consider this. In John 14, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, if there was nothing after that sentence, that is a... That is a message of condemnation. Think of it this way. Imagine you're here and there's a, there's a wedding ceremony. And so the, the, the bride and the groom, they come forward and they're exchanging vows. And imagine the, the, the bride says to the groom, Well, I love you. And I know you love me. But if you really love me, you will be perfect from this day forward. It'll make you pass out, Austin. <laughs> I mean, everybody in here would laugh. Why? Because we're all, I mean, let me just ask you guys. You know what? Raise your hand. What's a big. We'll just have a big marriage counseling appointment real quick. Husbands, wives, how many of you are perfect? Now, one of you might think you are, but the other one can answer. And so Jesus says here, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What Jesus is saying, if you love me, you're going to obey me perfectly, to which we should respond, well, there's a problem. But that's not all he says. He goes on to say, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. 
And so Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, but you can't keep my commandments without a helper, so I'm going to give you the helper so you can keep my commandments. The Spirit makes obedience possible. Does that mean we're perfect? No, we will still struggle because we're, we're on a journey to the land of promise, aren't we? The, the, the Israelites don't come through the Red Sea and all of a sudden just have it all figured out and have it all worked out, do they? I mean, my goodness, God's going to give them all this instruction about worship and tabernacle. What, you know what happens in the next chapter, don't you? <laughs> well, what should we do? Well, let's just melt down our gold and make a cow out of it and worship that. That's what God was telling us to do here. You know. But that, that's us. So, so we struggle with obedience. But, but we can obey in the power of the Spirit. And we can see growth and we can see sanctification. And that's the good news of the gospel. God's not calling any of us this morning to figure all this out, do it on our own, clean ourselves up. He's saying that, that, that He takes our broken, wrecked, messed up lives and if we will just repent and confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead for the glory of the Father, if we'll put our faith in that truth, well, then he'll begin to do this work in us that we read earlier. He'll continue to do to the day where Jesus returns. I'm not perfect by any means, but by God's grace, by God's grace, there's been a little bit of growth there since there was a couple of decades ago when I came to know Christ. And there's a lot of room for a lot more growth. So we keep pressing on and trusting in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He doesn't say, okay, Christian, you better go out there and be loving and joyful and patient and peaceful and kind. No, he says the Spirit at work within us cries out for these things. So, so when you and I struggle with, pick one, yeah, self-control then then we've got a spirit within us that that brings conviction we've got a spirit within us that cries out for the things of god we've got a spirit within us that then empowers us that's that we might grow in this area of self-control and so paul's not saying hey go be more self-controlled he's saying hey go grow in faith that through the work of the gospel and the holy spirit you might grow in this area of having more self-control See, the Spirit makes it possible for us to obey. The Spirit makes it possible for us to have, for example, self-control. And that's important because so often we talk about sin like we have no self-control. Well, I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> no, you couldn't. But God could. In fact, in His Word, He says He will. He says He won't allow you to be tempted to a point when there's not a way of escape that He then provides. He says in 2 Timothy 1.7, He gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so God gives us the ability to obey. So how are you doing in that area? Let me just, again, you don't have to raise your hand on this one, but how, how obedient are you to the Word today? I, I encounter... People have conversations all the time with folks who will say things like, well, I just, you know, I try to write, read the Bible. There's just some things in there I don't understand. I'll say, well, let's talk about the things you do understand. 
the failing to obey God in one area doesn't necessarily help you then to obey Him in other areas, does it? And a lot of the reasons we don't understand so many things in the Scripture is because we're refusing to respond to the things that we do understand. You've probably heard that Mark Twain quote. It's not the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. See, God fills us with His Spirit, not just so we can understand, but so that we might obey. And ultimately, what that means is we can find rest in Christ, which is the final point in your outline there. The Spirit of God enables us to find Sabbath rest. And so in these concluding verses, we see again, obviously, the Sabbath. Remembering the Sabbath is very important to God. In Exodus, he mentions this no less than five times. We've talked a lot about the Sabbath already. We've looked at how God sets the Sabbath and that creative creation order and, and how in the Sabbath order there of creation, God creates all things in six days. He, he rests on the seventh day, not because He needs rest, but, but we saw there how God is resting in the glory of His creation and how God is setting a pattern for us. He doesn't need rest, but He knows we need rest. And in that day of rest, we've seen how the Sabbath is a day to remember, to remember what the Lord has done, what the Lord will do. We've seen how the Sabbath is a day to remind us of our need to trust in God as God's people were there in the wilderness and they had nothing and God provided manna. But notice He did it six days and on the seventh day He said, listen, you just rest. I'm going to provide twice what you need on the sixth day. You don't need to go gather on the seventh day. And yet they struggled like we struggle with really resting in God's provision. But I want you to notice something. There, there's something new here we learn about the Sabbath observance in Exodus 31, and that's the punishment for breaking the Sabbath. Death. That, that, that might seem a bit harsh to you. <laughs> I mean, it might even seem a bit harsh when you consider God says to Moses, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. So God says, above all these other things I've said, I want my people to observe the Sabbath. And if they don't, the consequence is death. Well, why is that? Now, just to interject here, in case you haven't been with us in the series, it's important to understand there are, there are moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. This is a civil consequence of disobeying a moral law. This doesn't apply today, so skip church next Sunday. We're not going to kill you. Just make sure you knew that. But what's, what's this about? Well, breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiant rebellion against God. So this is what God's people saying, we, we don't want to be God's people. That this was an act of open rebellion. And so as a result, that there was a harsh penalty because even in our culture today, harsh penalties make us take the law more seriously. And I'll give you an example. Most of y'all know I live just up here on Fairfield Hill, and so most days I come up and down that hill several times, and so as I'm coming down that hill, I can see in front of me very clearly marked a stop sign. But often as I come down that hill, I, I don't see anything coming this way and anything coming this way, and I'll kind of look around. And I, I mean, I don't just run through it, but I might not fully stop. But actually about a week ago I started stopping Now, you're probably thinking, I got in trouble. I didn't get in trouble, but someone else did. Mm -hmm. 
I won't mention any names, Gary Hayden, but But Gary's coming down that hill, and he said he, as he's coming down that hill, you know, he slowed down, but he didn't come to a full stop. Started to ease through it, and then the lights came on. Not the lights of his conscience, but the lights of the police car. And Gary told me that the fine for going through a stop sign in Bloomfield is $140. Now, Oliver, that's just a couple pies for you, but, but for the rest of us. So now when I come to that stop sign, I think in my head, I don't want to pay $140. I can stop at the stop sign. Now, maybe that's what it does for you. Maybe it's other things. But when there's a penalty harsh enough, it affects our behavior. And so God gives such a harsh penalty to His people to affect their behavior that they might observe this Sabbath because this Sabbath would be critical not just for them but for us today because it points directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, today for us, our Sabbath rest is found in Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And where is that rest found? It is found in Christ. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have have you ever been heavy laden? Have you ever just been burdened? Have you ever just had anxiety and worry? Have you ever just had so much weight on you? I mean, we've talked about this before. Suffering is not proportional. There are some in this room, you have suffered so much more than so many others. And when that comes and you feel that, that, that weight, you can sleep all day and not have rest. And Jesus says here, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. And so what we see here in Exodus 31 is God is, he is preparing His people and future generations ultimately to find their rest in Christ. Are you resting in Christ today? Are you obedient to His Word today? Are you looking to Him? I can't help but think this morning that there is someone in the world today who spent half a billion dollars to look at a painting of Jesus and they'll still miss Him. They'll talk about who painted it. They'll talk about how much they paid for it. But, but they'll stare at that half a billion dollar painting and they will likely miss the Savior who we can freely gaze on today and who calls us to rest in Him today. And so as we respond in repentance and faith this morning, we're going to sing there as a Redeemer, a great reminder of the work of the triune God as we sing. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your spirit till your work on earth is done. So friends, if you would stand together as I pray for us, as we offer this time of response and worship together. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, empowered by the Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would fix our gaze on you. I pray, God, for any here who's, who, who is burdened and overwhelmed, that they might find rest in Christ. 
I pray, Lord, for, for any who's yet to find that rest through the gospel, who still is responding to the lie of this world, that if we just try hard enough and do good enough, we'll be okay. We won't be okay. Lord, would you work in their heart and their mind through the Spirit that they might understand that they desperately need to repent and trust in Christ today. Father, I pray for us as we sing that, that we would be able to sing right now with truly thankful hearts, whether this week for us has been a week of celebration or this week has been a week of suffering. Help us to set our gaze on Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen.